Hello, listeners. Welcome to A Writer's World. This is Sean Griffin, a poet and writer who hopes to share some part of that world with you here on KWNK. It's a big subject, and we'll see where it leads. Almost a month ago, it was Denise Levertov's 100th birthday. In the 26 years since she has gone, I have thought about her legacy as a poet, activist, teacher, and friend to many who came of age in the second half of the 20th century. For a long time, I could not turn my head without seeing her. She was very close to Hayden Carruth, Adrian Rich, Robert Duncan, James Laughlin, Wendell Berry, Robert Creeley, and a host of other poets who changed the dynamic of what being a poet was. She had little time for wasted effort. If you were lucky enough to be a poet in this world, you had better use your gift. I remember reading her mimeograph poems in college and knowing intuitively something was writhing on the page. Her verses were uncannily honest, germane, and challenging. She was never satisfied with the status quo or what privilege it gave her. She wanted more and wrote to find it. When you look at the arc of her work, over a thousand pages in her collected poems, you start to understand that like Snyder, Ginsburg, and Ruckreiser, she broke with tradition to mold a poem that was not bathed in artifice. She wanted the poem to speak as if you could not turn away from it, and so much of her material, particularly in mid-career, was about the wreckage in this country. She was never far from the protests, the marches, the anti-war demonstrations, the havoc from Johnson, Nixon, and the Vietnam War. In the 50-plus years that have passed since the draft was eliminated, it is hard to imagine how consumed we were with fighting in Southeast Asia, how divisive it was, and how many bled for its cause. And still, the poets kept writing. I know she believed her words did something, and this is a real point of contention in poetry. Can it be of any use? A social utility, as my friend Doug Unger says. She would unequivocally answer, yes. You have to remember, she was writing in the time of Ashbery, Merrill, and so many more, whose hold on the American grain in poetry was nearly absolute. Even though she taught for most of her life, she was an outsider by definition. Her poems were not meant to impress the academics. She was called to be an artist in the world, and it kept her from the literary arm-pumping that came with going along. She was a widow to pretense, a woman who took her craft seriously and expected you to do the same. When I walked into her class in the mid-80s, I was awestruck. By then, she was more than a poet. She was one of a handful of American women poets who had changed the arc of the art form. And whether you agreed with her politics you deferred to her poems because they were drawn from a memory of standing alone. Of standing with the tradition of artist as toolmaker, trenchant believer, and master of the form. She could intimidate. If you asked a question, be prepared for the answer. And she could regale. Listening to her speak about a poem was like listening to a waterfall. She knew it intimately, how it worked across the page, how it built tension in the line, how it became the source of her knowing. 
She read voraciously and could rarely be found wanting explanation. I remember her playing piano in her apartment before we arrived for the evening. The light was dim and her fingers looked small on the keys. She was teaching herself, much as she had taught herself to write poetry. This brings a certain authority to one's work. You cannot want something else. You are made from what you learned. You strive to understand what you must do and risk what you know to do it. She was a nurse by training, but soon after emigrating from England, there was but one passion, and it was poetry. For much of her career, the San Francisco poet Robert Duncan was her closest friend and confidant. There's a book of correspondence between the two that illuminates just how far one will go to make the written word. And though this was long before the internet, they kept in touch across the country, across demonstrations, across rivalries, until one day Duncan wrote a scathing review of a book by her close friend Carruth. She had told him about Carruth's fragile mental health and asked him repeatedly to be kind a quality that seems to be missing from much of modern literature. This fracture finally became their undoing. She could not countenance his openly hurtful screed from one close poet friend to another. She felt responsible for Carruth, and rightly so. He had defended her when there was little to show for her efforts. Carruth recalls receiving her sheaf of poems in the mail when he was editing The Voice That Is Great Within Us perhaps our finest contemporary poetry anthology. He was so struck by her work that he insisted she be in the book, and this began their friendship, which, years later, Duncan, whether knowingly or not, threatened. By the time I met her, she and Duncan had completely broken apart. In a word, she was a woman of conviction, meant to serve the wider conscience of who and what poetry represented. Was it a private art form, one that held sway over the blooms and the vendors of the world, or was it one that wanted to be in the minds of the generation that was being called to question the values of the 1960s and 70s? We think of being a political poet as a moniker, not something you did. Nothing could be further from the truth for Levertov. When Jimmy Santiago Baca sent her his first poems from prison, she wrote back, encouraged him, and later took them to Laughlin at New Directions. Her willingness to be an advocate for a poet inside was unthinkable to most mainstream American poets. And yet, when you look at the history, and especially the history of poetry in other countries, very few poets have lived outside the realm of politics, or worse, the realm of politics devastating their lives. She knew this because she read these poets. Her father was a Russian Jew. Akhmatova, Mandelstam, and Mayakovsky were not just names to her. They were poets who pointed the way. They were in the larger room of right and wrong long before she arrived. This is the room she felt most at home in, and art was not apart from this place. Art was of this place. Hers, particularly, was intensely personal and political, or personally political, meaning her words were her actions. She needed them to be part of her persona. She was not looking for outside influence or prevalence. 
The poems were grounded in the depth of her understanding of human suffering. A poetic humanist in the maelstrom of 1960s American grief. We are living in our own time of grief now. It's hardly an idea to share how commonplace its presence has become, and we wish for poets like her to take command of the language they love. We wish to be embraced by a greater truth, a poetic searing of what is not going on. Fortunately, there is much more poetry being written that traces her influence, her moxie, her devotion to a passion of mind. That much has changed. But we are still sleeping through this time, to paraphrase the late Senator Robert Byrd. So we need her example. We need to read from the poems she left, so that we may find an outcry of belief. It is not so hard to imagine the times may change again, and the poets will be sidelined again. That is why I turn to her when the noise gets loud. That is why I turn to her peers. They stood in the place of conscience, not conformity. They insisted poetry be of value. They learned early on to object to the few whose insular vision was vaulted over the many in poetry. Art is a talisman that thrives when it's closest to the concerns of you and I and this place we live on. There is a reason we read Levertov in these times. We want to understand what lies below our awakening. Toward the end of her life, she converted to Catholicism, and her last poems are almost prayerful. It seems the logical place for this great voice to turn, in homage to the Spirit. I want to close with an excerpt from that day, from this great unknowing last poems. That day, across a lake in Switzerland, fifty years ago, light was jousting with long lances. Fencing with broad swords back and forth among cloudy peaks and foothills. I knew this. I'd seen it. Not the sensation of déjà vu. It was Blake's inkwash vision, the spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters. The column steadily came on across the lake toward us. On each side of it, there was no rain. We rose to our feet. Breathless, and then it reached us, took us into its veil of silver, wrapped us in finest weave of wet, and we laughed for joy, astonished. There will probably not be a conclusive story about her influence on American poetry. The subject of two biographies, author of countless books of essays, translations, and poems. Levertov was determined to live where poetic definition is ineffable, a practice of poetry that required her to be in the poem on the page, not someone else, not what was asked of her, but what she alone resolved to write. This concludes our program on Denise Levertov. Please join us in the collective ethersphere on the first and third Sundays at 5 p.m. for our next meditation on words, or stream it at kwnkradio.org. And please support your local independent bookstore in Reno. That's Sundance Books and Music, and in Las Vegas, that's the Writers Block. They're open, and we need them. Thank you. Be safe, and spread a little kindness wherever you are.